told you, did I tell you the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 10? We're going to be there in just a moment. I'll get you there. But 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to look at the first six verses of that passage in just a moment. But, but don't you hate it when someone else is right? It happens, if it happens once to me, it's happened a thousand times where Vanessa, my wife, she'll tell me something. I'm, I, you were wrong on this or that or the other thing. My hackles go up. I say, no, I wasn't wrong. And we fight and fuss about it for Lord knows how long. And then after a while, I realize she was right. <laughs> I was wrong. Now, I, I hate that when that happens. Sometimes I'll apologize. Sometimes. Sometimes I'll keep on defending myself even though I know she was right and I was wrong. And sometimes I just try to pretend it never happened, just move on, just act like nothing ever happened. Because there's something inside of me that, that wants what it wants. There's something inside of me that's totally fine as long as you don't call out my problem, my sin. I like it as long as nobody corrects me or does anything about it. And when she does, my wife calls me out and she's faithful to do this. Bam! It just, it just raises its ugly head and it doesn't want to deal with it. Now, in my saner moments, I'd like to think this is one of those saner moments as I'm talking to you right now. I realize that I have a wife who is willing to brave my irrational sometimes and prideful anger most of the time because she loves me. She cares for me. She wants the best for me. I really do believe that. And for me, I don't know if y'all have looked at me since you've been listening, but for somebody like me, those are pretty high stakes. To have somebody like her love somebody like me, I, I better be, be happy about this thing. So I'm pretty, pretty pleased with that. I couldn't imagine what I would do, and I'm being serious, what I would do if I didn't have someone like her to love me and to care for me. But the stakes are really a whole lot higher when it comes to the love that God has for you. You need to understand, and I'm talking to every person in here as best as I can, but I want you to hear this is to you that the stakes are your own eternal destiny. The stakes are the souls of men, women, children that you know, that you love, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your, your friends, the people that are important to you. Their souls are in the balance. The power in the future of this church if this church is to have any hope of being in any kind of an impact in the future, that's what's, on the, that's what's on the table. That's what's at stake here. And those are the stakes that Paul is, has in mind as he's addressing the Corinthian church here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You need to understand that he's written this whole letter. This is the second letter to the Corinthian church that we have in the Bible. He written this, has written this whole letter in part as a defense against a lot of accusations. People have thrown, they've just thrown a bunch of junk at Paul. And, and they were saying, largely, if you could sort of summarize them, they were saying essentially God wasn't in his ministry because he didn't meet some expectation. They expected him to not have to suffer as much. They expected him not to, 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 to say things in a different way, to get people more excited about things. And he just wasn't meeting their expectations. So they said, well, you must not have the hand of God on you. And Paul's comeback to that was, and you'll see it over in chapter 12. I won't make you turn there, but in chapter 12, verse 10, he says, it's actually my weakness. It's actually my suffering. That's the stuff that makes it so that God does and can work through me. 
But see, what Corinth wanted, and you could just insert any church here. Of course, that wouldn't be true of true gospel Baptist church, but we can, any church wants this. What Corinth wanted was they wanted somebody who was cool with their sin. They wanted somebody who wouldn't confront them on anything. They wanted somebody that when they did confront them, they sort of acted like, well, it's not a big deal. It's okay. They wanted somebody who would give them all the excitement of the entertainers of that moment in that day. But Paul is coming to them, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, with simplicity and sincerity. He's not coming with a bunch of frills and a bunch of fancy stuff. He's just coming and saying, I want to show you by my life what it means to live the Christian life. And that means it's not all sunshine and roses. That, that means you are actually in a fight. A fight for your literal, eternal life. It's a fight that Paul says in this passage we're about to look at together. A fight he knows will test his patience. It's a fight that will require some special equipment. It's a fight that's going to be a fight that he's willing to take on. He wants them to be willing to take it on. And it's a fight, I just want to make this personal to you, that those, you, those of you that are members of this church, those of you that are simply attending this, this uh, congregation assembly this morning, this is a fight that is actually a fight you are involved in. The problem is too many of us don't realize we're in it. This is the problem. Too many people are happy, complacent. They're almost, from a spiritual perspective, like they're asleep. Not paying any attention to this fight. Thinking that if they are in a fight, it's a fight they can get a hold of with their hands. Or something physical they can do. But it's a fight that you're in, whether you realize it or not. And it's a fight for your life. I want you to look with me, beginning in chapter 10, 2 Corinthians and verse 1. Paul is now addressing the Corinthian church, and he says there that he is beseeching. He says, I beseech you, I'm a, I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. He says there, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm meek, I am, I am meek, and I am gentle, and I am the word beseech, he's begging them. He says, I'm just begging you. Please pay attention to what I'm saying here. He is saying, listen, I've got something to tell you. I want you to pay attention to this. I need you to hear me on what I'm saying. Well, what is it he's saying? Go to verse 2. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He is saying there, listen... I don't want to have to get on your case. That's what he's saying. I don't want to have to be bold. I'm going to, if I need to, I'm going to get on it, but I don't want to have to. So what he's saying in so many words is, I'm, I'm, I want you to repent, church. I want you to pay attention to the sin that's in your life. I don't want to have to fight you over it. I don't want to have to hurt your feelings over it. I don't want to have to get in your face over it. But listen, all I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, please pay attention to this. He's saying in verse, go back to verse 1, he says he, he beseeches by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's saying, I'm going to do this in a way that is kind and meek and mild. I don't know how it is that the Lord got your attention, but I can tell you if it was one year that he allowed you to wait before you accepted the good news of the gospel, that was more than you deserved. If it was one second 
after you heard the gospel, it was more than you deserved. Why? Because the Lord is gentle. He is meek. He is kind. I heard it said one time that Jesus is a gentleman. And I really do believe that. Now, I believe in the revelation of Jesus Christ, that last book of the Bible. He will come back with a rod of iron and he will rule this world. And you better be on his side or you're on the wrong side. But there's a moment of grace right now. There's a moment that he is allowing and he is pleading, just like Paul is to the Corinthian church. He's inviting, please come, please, please don't, as, as my daddy used to say when we were driving down the road, don't make me stop this car. Don't make me stop this car. That's what the Lord is doing. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He is actually saying that he is giving them a chance. He's being patient. He's being gentle. And he's being kind. The writer of Isaiah, he says in Isaiah 42, he says that Jesus was like a bruise. Talking about the Messiah who would come, rather. That the Messiah would be like a, he would not have a bruised reed. He shall he not break. And a smoking flax shall he not quench. He's not rough. He's not tumble. He's not going to come in and, and take, he's not going to make, make a mess. He's going to actually just sort of gently plead with you. But here's the problem with that. Paul was doing this to the Corinthian church. He says there, it's the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's reflecting the Lord. But as he was doing that, he was being accused of being a coward. He was being accused of weakness. He was being accused of this. It says in verse 1, go back to that. He says there, that I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. And, and he goes on in the next verse to say there that there are some that would accuse me of when I'm with you, I'm kind of meek and mild. But when I'm away from you, I talk a big talk. And he was saying, listen, guys, you think that I'm being meek and mild. You think I'm being weak towards you when I'm really trying to be patient and gentle and give you a chance to respond. The problem is, here they are expecting, they're expecting him, you'll, if you read on down in verses 9, 10, and 11, we're not going to read all that, but if you were to see that, you would see they were expecting him to come in and to terrify them. They were expecting him to come in and to be powerful and eloquent. They were expecting all these things, and because he was actually giving them grace to say, please repent, give you another chance, they were mistaking kindness for weakness. You're in the fight for your eternal soul. You are. You may not recognize it. You may not see it. You may not understand it. You may not be awake to that truth and that reality. But you are. And what I want to encourage you, because you are in that fight, do not mistake the love of God. Do not mistake His patience. Do not mistake His kindness. Do not mistake His grace to you as some kind of weakness. That you miss what He's doing by preachers beckoning you from a pulpit, please come to Christ. From the Scriptures screaming loudly, please, please turn away from your sin. From brothers and sisters in Christ, from Fathers and mothers from teachers who are talking to you to say, please turn around. Don't mistake that for weakness. And instead, listening as many Christians, whether they are actually Christians or not, I will leave that to God, but in their claim, they are Christians. Many Christians are doing today, instead of actually seeing that God is calling them to repent, instead of seeing that God is the one that they need to turn to to wake up to the spiritual needs of their soul, they are instead listening for some political voice out there to give them some hope. 
They're listening to or looking for some strong-armed leader to fix everything. They're expecting somebody of whoever your favorite theologian or writer or preacher or whatever in the past, somebody like that to come back again. They're expecting that they're never going to have to ever pay for the sins. They're never going to have those things come to light. They think those things are all in the past. Why? Because God's not zapped them or something. No, no, no. You're, you're missing it. He's being patient. He's being loving. He's being kind. He's lovingly extending himself to you. Again, through other people. There are many people in your lives, I am sure, that are around you that are calling you to repent. You need to hear their call and you need to respond before it is too late. There will be a time where you cannot. This is a fight for your life, so don't mistake the kindness of the Lord for his weakness. It's also because of this fight we need to make sure we know that the normal rules of fighting, the normal rules of warfare don't apply here. Things have changed. I want you to follow along in the passage in chapter 10. Go back there in verse 3. He says, or rather, let me go back to the last part of verse 2. You see, there, there, there they accuse him. They say, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. They're accusing him of not having God's power on him. Saying, you're worldly. You're in the flesh. Well, Paul says, I'll take that. You're right. I am in the flesh. Now, he means a little something different, but I don't want you to see this in verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh. Okay, you're right. I walk in the flesh. Who here this, this, this morning is not in the flesh? I, I'm in the flesh. I, if I wasn't in the flesh and I was talking to you, y'all might want to leave. There's something going on here that's a little out of this world. We're all in the flesh. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I am in the flesh. I'm walking in the flesh. He says, I am weak. I am unimpressive. I am someone who gets hurt. I do bleed. I do disappoint people. I am disappointed in people. I am in the flesh. This is the nature of who I am. And in, from Paul's perspective, he's saying, because I am in the flesh, I can't do what you want. I can't win the battle that you need me to fight because I'm not good enough for it. So look at what he says in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. He says, I am in the flesh, yes. But this is a battle that I am not equipped for with my flesh. My flesh doesn't do this. My skin, my bones, my muscle, my brain, my heart can't do this. It can't accomplish this. So that's why he's using some different tools. Look at the parenthetical thought there in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical. They're not of this flesh. They're not of this world. There's some different, war, or different weapons that we're using. These weapons are not carnal, but instead they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You see, the war that Paul is fighting and the war that you and I need to fight is not a physical war. They can pass whatever legislation they need to in Raleigh or Washington, D.C., and it doesn't really, that's not the battle. They can come and they can physically, as, as Jesus said, they can literally kill the body. But that's not the one we fear, the one who kills both body and soul. That's the one we fear. So, so we understand that there's, there's something else going on here. There's something else going on here. And Paul is saying he's fighting with spiritual weapons. In Ephesians, Paul writes that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. We're in the fight against something that is 
I can't see. I, I can't put my hands on. It's in the heart of men, in the heart of you and me. That's the stuff we're fighting against. And because of that, the normal stuff that we would naturally think would fix a problem, it's not going to help it. In fact, we need to realize, because we're in the fight of our life, we need to realize all the normal means to attack something, to fight something, those things are fleshly, and they will fail us. You can put together all the programs you ever want, educational, whatever kind of... Organize the church if you want to. That is not the answer. It's not excitement. We can put together an event that everybody leaves here all pumped up and excited about something. That's not the answer. The answer is definitely not reforms. Have we not tried that from the beginning of humanity to put reforms and legislations in place? I'm not suggesting that reform and legislation is not an appropriate action. I'm just saying it's not going to win this battle. That is not going to, that's not going to put a dent, it's not going to put a dent in this spiritual problem. I'll go ahead and say, I don't even believe it's the denominations. We're talking, oh, it's a, it's a church thing. I don't think any, okay, let's fix the, let's find the right denomination. Let's associate ourselves with the right statement of faith. Let's get all of these things just exactly right, and that'll be fixing it. Or let's, let's remember some set of traditions that we used to do, or we always do. That's the answer to the problem. I want to... I want to submit to you based on the authority of God's word. Those things are not going to fix the problem. The problem is only going to be addressed. The battle is only going to be won when we have, as he says in verse 4, we have those weapons that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Well, what are those? He doesn't tell us in this particular passage, but there are two that I want to offer to you that Paul talks about, uh, at least one that he talks about and another that the writer of Hebrews talks about. The first, which I believe is what Paul has in view, absolutely what's in view here, that weapon, the weapon of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. He says that's the thing that is going to transform lives. Do you know that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we will believe, if we will repent and believe the gospel, if we will follow after Jesus, if that is what we will do, that is what transforms a life. We just heard this gentleman talking about this, giving his testimony. That's what he testified to, was that his life was changed. And I bet you if we got the time to do it, we could ask many people in this congregation and you could talk about with specifics, here's where I was and here's where I am. How does that happen? It happens because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, by the way, it doesn't stop at that moment of confessing faith in Christ. That transformation, we call it sanctification, if you want the big word on it. The sanctification, that progression through the Christian life where we become more and more conformed to the to the image of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? It only happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is empowered by the gospel. So I want to fight this fight. I need to make sure I got the gospel. I also, we certainly know that the other weapon or a very closely related weapon would be the word of God itself. The writer of Hebrews says it is a quick and powerful and sharper weapon. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. If I want to really get in there and actually address the problems of our culture, the rest of, rest of the problems of our family, of our churches, of my personal life, if I really want to do that, it's not going to be ever done by anybody else other than 
Finding my, my, my face looking in the word of God and reading what God has to say and allowing it to speak to my heart. Rightly applied, God's weapons, he says that they are mighty through God. God's weapons bring down strongholds. That requires that I certainly am exposed to it. <laughs> you can't shoot me with a weapon that doesn't exist. Doesn't, you can't shoot me or can't cut me with a sword that you don't have in my presence. So I got to open it up and have it be exposed to it. I then, once I'm exposed to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know what I have to do? I have to believe what it says. And when I believe what it says, the response is going to always be repentance. Turning from my sin, finding that wicked way that is in me and turning from it because that's what the word of God has told me to do. And it's going to affect every area of my life. This is not just a Sunday morning thing. It's not a churchy thing. This is a whole life thing. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 says that I am a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things are now new. Everything is transformed. My whole life is changed. Every aspect of me. And I will, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, I will take off that old man and I will put on that new. This is the fight that we're in. This is the fight that we must fight. This is the thing we can't fight by normal rules. We can have all the rules that we want. I can come over to your house and I can shake you by the collar. I can do anything, all those things. And at so there's a few of you that might work with, but all it's going to do is transform the outside. It's not going to change the heart. It is only the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that cuts into the heart and transforms from the inside out. So in this fight, we need to make sure we're not mistaking God's kindness for weakness. We also need to make sure we don't assume that the normal rules apply. But in this fight, and this sounds to our modern ears very harsh, but it's definitely the mindset of warfare. We don't need to let any of our enemies live. We need to cut down every one of our enemies. Now, Paul, trans, uh, trans, um, he changes his thought here, or rather continues his thought here in verse 5. He builds on this. In verse 4, we're introduced to the fact this is a spiritual war, that we have spiritual weapons. So he says, what does that weapon or that warfare look like? Verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Let's stop there for a minute because this is the first stage of warfare. If you can imagine an uh, ancient battlefield, you're trying to take down a city. What's that city going to have? It's going to have fortifications all around it. It's going to have all kinds of, it's going to be hard to get in there. You're not, they're not going to just open the door and let you in. So you're going to have to figure out a way to get over those walls. That's the first thing we've got to do is we've got to destroy the fortifications. We've got to actually go in there and realize that there are things that are built up against, against the gospel of Jesus Christ, against the word of God. And he says there that the first thing we're going to do is we're going to cast down those imaginations. The imaginations are those arguments, the reasons of our minds. Those things that are in our minds that we have, and we all have them. You read, uh, somebody, somebody preaches a sermon. This is how it works. This is exactly how it works for me anyway. Somebody preaches a sermon, you're listening to it. It's a good thought. It's not for me. I know somebody over there that needs that. Or you're reading in the Bible and it tells you something that you're doing and you know you're doing and you say, well, what I'm doing is not as bad as it's acting like it is. It's just not that bad. It's not hurting me. 
again, y'all can say amen or ouch, whichever you want to do. It's fine with me. But the point is, that's how we do. Is we build up these reasons in our minds why we don't need to submit to the truth of the gospel. Why we don't need to submit to the truth of God's word. And he says that's got to come down. He says there, it's the things that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. He said, ultimately, these are obstacles of pride. Every one of these things are saying, I don't need God. And what this battle is for is to first take down those, those fortifications. That's what God's word does. Remember we said it was a powerful sword piercing in? It's exactly what it does. It breaks down the walls. It breaks down your arguments. It breaks down all of the excuses that we have. But it's not done. It breaks down fortifications. But then it goes on in verse 5, continue on where we left off, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now again, think about an ancient battlefield. You try to break down those walls. So you break down those walls. Well, what's inside? I can guarantee it's not just... It's not just soldiers. There are soldiers in there, but it's not just soldiers. There's other folks in there. There's all kinds of people in there. And you don't know who's on your side and who's not. So what are they going to do? They may or may not kill all of them, but you know what they're going to do? They're going to take them captive. They're going to hold on to them. They're not just going to make sure that the walls are broken down. If I look at a city with the walls broken down, I would might suggest, well, maybe, just maybe, that's a defeated city. But if I got all those people running around doing what they want to, are they a, a, a defeated city? Not necessarily. They, they, they need to be made captive. Same thing goes here. I need all of those thoughts to be captive. Every thought needs to be captive to the obedience of Christ. I need to make sure... Notice he did say thoughts. Because we tend to focus on the external, right? Well, you need to stop drinking. You need to stop going to those places that are bad places. You need to stop saying those words. All good things. I'm not going to say that's bad. But you know what? You know what church folks are the worst for doing? At least, I, I, I always joke, I was born an independent Baptist. For better or for worse, I was born in that. that don't take, doesn't take me to heaven, but that's how I was born. My daddy was in college at Tennessee Temple University when I was born. So I was born an independent Baptist. So you know what that means? That means I know how to make you think I'm a good person. I know how to dress. I, I used to know how to shave. I, I, know how to, I know how all the things I'm supposed to do. I know all those things. And you know what's the easiest thing in the world to do, at least for me and a lot of church folks, is we can put on the right outside external. But in our hearts, we have ill feelings towards people. We have wicked thoughts. We have greed. We have pride. We have anger. We have all of those things. And this is why he says here, listen, it's not just about breaking down the external walls. It's about now going into the heart and make sure even the thoughts are taken captive. Because all of your thoughts need to be obedient to Christ. So we need to seek out and destroy all opposition. But then he goes on, and he's not done. This is the part I was wanting you to see in verse 6. Having in readiness to, re having, excuse me, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Here's the thing. You might have had your walls broken down. So you say, yep, Lord, I need you. I love you and I want to serve you. You might even have gone through that process of getting those, those thoughts captured by the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, every, every part of me wants to obey the Lord. But you're lying to yourself if you think that job is ever done. Just like this captive city. When you capture that city, you may have it. 
But there's always going to be some little part, some little group of people that are still loyal to the previous owners. And just like you and just like me, there's some little part of us that wants to go back, that's, that's tempted. This is where temptation comes from. I'm only tempted by stuff that I really like, you know. I'm not tempted by the stuff that bothers you. I'm tempted by the stuff that bothers me. That's where it comes from. And there's got to be a part of us that is an ongoing resistance, never giving any quarter, never giving any mercy. Paul writes about it this way in Romans 13, that we need to not make provision for the flesh. Don't even give it a doorway. Don't give it an opportunity. When we see it, snuff it out. This is an ongoing process where we cannot let these enemies live. And here's what I want you to see with all this in the time that I have left with you. Here's what I want you to see with all this. Here's Paul writing this to the Corinthian church. And if you read the way he's writing to them, he's saying, I'm engaged. Paul is engaging in this battle for these people. And I believe what he's trying to say here is, yes, I'm willing to do this. I love you enough, Corinthian church, that I'm willing to stick my neck out, to look weak, to use weapons that are God's weapons, not my weapons. I'm willing to do this so that you can prosper spiritually, so that you can grow, so that we can defeat this together. But I believe in process of doing that, he's trying to get them to pick up the weapons and to use them as well. What I want you to see is that he loves them enough to fight for these people. He calls them, he calls in another place, he's talking about the Galatian church here, but he says that he wants to see Christ formed in them. See, you're in a fight for your life. And it's a worthwhile battle. And I would be willing to guarantee, I don't know this church as well as I'd like to, but I would be willing to guarantee there are people in place. If nobody else, I know your pastor is, but I guarantee there's more than that in this church that cares for your soul and they're engaged in this fight. I want you, I'm trying to exhort you by the scriptures here for you to get in the fight. Too many of us are having people like a pastor standing in the pulpit, engaged in the fight, trying to storm the fortifications and trying to get those thoughts captive and, and, and trying to, to find, root out those spies, the enemy spies in our hearts. He's trying to do that, but we're sitting there saying, who, what are you talking about? He's saying, this is not the right place. You go somewhere else. This is, you're not, you're, why are you doing, even getting offended that there's somebody that loves us enough. But this is why, and the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, of verses 24 and 25, this is why we assemble together, to provoke one another to love. This is why we come together. This is why we have to fight sin. The writer of Hebrews, again, in chapter 12, verse 4, says we should be resisting to blood. Let me tell you, I get bloody sometimes doing stuff with my hands, but it's not that often that I go ahead and get so, get so far into it that I get bloody fighting my sins. But he says, no, we got to get in it that way. This is why God chastens us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. This is the reason he chastens us. Because here's what you need to realize, what you have got to wake up to. That sin that you're protecting, that sin that you're getting offended because somebody's pointing a finger at it, that sin that somebody that the Lord is graciously extending you an opportunity to repent from, that sin, if you don't get about the business of killing that sin in your life, that sin will turn around and kill you. It will kill your relationships. It will kill your effectiveness. It will kill you. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, it will ultimately drag you to the pits of hell. 
We need to be about this business. We need to get into this fight. There's already some people lined up. There's already people enlisted in the fight. Or you get in on the fight with it as well because it's your life that's at stake. And nobody likes to be told to repent. <laughs> I don't like to be corrected. I'll just, I'll just go ahead and tell you that right now. I get embarrassed by it because I like to think I've got all the answers. And when somebody calls me out on something, whether it's a boss man or if it's a, a wife or whoever it is, I, I kind of like, oh, what? you found some problem in me. And I like to think I'm perfect, but I'm not. But it's embarrassing. I mean, are we not? I mean, maybe it's just me, but it is for me. Nobody likes to submit. We like to think we've got it all figured out. But God, the fact that God is using people, Paul, your pastor, your spouse, and there's probably a host of others. But those are just a few that come immediately to mind. These people that God is using who patiently and lovingly and biblically pointing to Jesus and systematically and continuously calling you to repent. That shows you that God loves you. And I would dare say that those people that I mentioned love you too. That shows you that he's working to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. So my invitation, and I am genuinely closing, my invitation to you is this. Will you yield to that call? Will you pick up the weapons of warfare? That is, if you are here to th this morning and you have never accepted Jesus as your Savior, we talked about the gospel in broad terms, but the gospel is essentially the fact that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose victorious over your sins, and he is seated in heaven today, ruling over everything. And you simply have to believe in that, lean on that, trust in that as your hope of eternity. And I know that's not probably enough to explain it to you, but I just want you to know that if you've never accepted Jesus, you need to accept the gospel today. I'm confident we'll explain that. If nobody else in this church will, and I guarantee you they will, but if they won't, you talk to me, and I will show it to you in the Bible. But I want you to know we need to go ahead and engage in this fight. Pick up those weapons. Pick up the word of God. Read what it says and be prepared to obey what it says. And we need to get engaged in the battle, just practically. Husbands, do this. Not today, because she'll know you're up to something. But do this. Just ask your wife, Lord, uh, uh, honey, what is it that, um, that I'm doing that I need to change? And it's going to hurt your feelings, what she's going to tell you, I promise you. But go ahead and do that. Wives, it wouldn't hurt y'all to do the same thing. Church members, pay attention to what your pastor preaches about. If he's a good pastor, I'm guaranteed he's probably not preaching about your sin specifically, but he's preaching what God has told him to preach. And if it happens to hit on a mark that happens to hit in your, in your neck of the woods, I can guarantee you that that's him doing, being faithful, but trying to wield the weapons against your warfare. And you need to pay attention to it. Christian, you're in this church, and you may have some friends in this church, and that's wonderful, and you should. But make sure you're befriending people, expecting them to hold you accountable. Expecting them to hold you accountable to the truth of God's word. That they, you allow them to speak into your life. And you, they allow you to speak into theirs. You need those kind of relationships. That's the battle that we're in. That's the battle we're involved in. I'd like to close with a word of prayer. Then I want to invite your pastor to, to close this service out as he sees fit. I don't know what all your traditions are here. So I want to ask you to stand with me. And I'm just going to pray. Lord. 
I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you for your love for me, the love that actually cares enough about me to hurt my feelings sometimes, to address my sin, to take down those strongholds. I pray that this church has heard your word. I pray that it's been clear and plain and direct to them. I pray that you will help them to repent and believe. Believe what you've said. Believe you, not me, but believe you. I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in their hearts. I'm asking this in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.